Hello and welcome to another episode of The Heart Chamber. I am your host, Boots Knighton. Episode 14 is already here and I can hardly believe it. Thank you for coming along with me on this heart journey. And today is an incredible episode. And I feel like I say that every week because every heart warrior story is truly incredible. Today, I interview a heart mom, Anna Jaworski. She's an author, a publisher, and a podcaster. She is married to Frank Jaworski and mom to Joey, who is heart healthy, and Hope, a single ventricle survivor. Anna is currently the host of several different podcasts, including Heart to Heart with Anna, the CHC podcast, as well as the executive producer of Bereaved But Still Me, as well as a Spanish podcast for the Heart Warrior community. She is also the executive director of Hearts Unite the Globe, or HUG for short, which is devoted to providing free resources to the congenital heart community. Anna had me on her podcast, Heart to Heart with Anna, and it was such a fun podcast that we decided to have her on the Heart Chamber as well. And I wanted her to share her story from the caregiver perspective, particularly as a parent of giving birth to a baby knowing that something just wasn't quite right. And she really takes us through the journey of advocating for, at the time, Alex, baby Alex, who then eventually did transition to Hope, which she will talk a little bit more about that in the episode. But baby Alex's story is really, truly one that is a miracle unfolding and I at times I forgot to breathe listening to it all so buckle your seat belts and get ready and don't worry Alex who's now hope is thriving it's a beautiful story but a necessary one so let's get to it I'm so excited to have you on today because there's like so much I want to cover obviously you're a heart mom and I, I would love some education around you know, why you're a heart mom, like go into all of that. But then also dovetail from that to like, then what has led you to the really important work you're doing now. And I want this to also be a platform to raise awareness around the Hug Network and Heart to Heart with Anna and all the other podcasts. And the basically, I like to think of as a book incubator that you have going for people (laughs) to tell their important stories, their heart stories. So You're just, you're elevating. I kind of have chills thinking about like all the ways that you are elevating heart warriors and their stories and their families and caregivers and healthcare workers. And, you know, that's how we heal. And that's how we move the conversation forward on healing well and thriving after such a difficult diagnosis. So Well, thank you so much, Boots. It's such an honor to be on your podcast. I'm super excited about it. So it was so much fun for me to have you on my podcast. And so now it's exciting for me to be on the other end of the microphone. Yes. And I'll put a link in uh, the show notes to find you and and that podcast episode because we had a good time. So. Oh, yeah, it was it was great and so unusual. I've never met anybody else before that I know of with myocardial bridging. But now I'm wondering 
maybe I have met somebody else before with it and they don't know. And I didn't know. And I have a feeling it's much more common than people realize. But to speak to my entree into the world of congenital heart defects, my child was born in 1994 with a congenital heart defect. And it was originally diagnosed with hypoplastic left heart syndrome, which is a huge mouthful. And for anybody who's listening who is older like I am, they may remember baby Faye. This was a very famous baby from California who was also born with hypoplastic left heart syndrome, but she was born in the 1980s. And at that time, she was also born in, well, she was born in California, not too far from where Dr. Leonard Bailey was doing some amazing research. And part of the research he was doing was what's called xenotransplantation. So baby Faye became internationally known when she received a baboon heart transplant. It was fantastic what they learned from that experience. They learned about the importance of cross-matching tissue type and blood type. They didn't know that prior to this, as far as I know. I'm just a heart mom friend, so (laughs) I could be wrong about some of this. But from what I remember reading, the experience they had with baby Faye has led to an understanding of transplantation overall and has led to more successful transplants of human heart to human heart. They don't do xenotransplantation so much anymore, although we do frequently have pig valves or other kinds of valves that are implanted into humans, and they're accepted readily. readily. But when the doctor told me that my child had hypoplastic left heart syndrome, I didn't think I had ever heard of it before until he told me that baby Faye was born with the same condition. Unfortunately, my baby was in congestive heart failure and was not eligible for a transplant because at that time he was way too sick. And they only gave my baby a 5% chance to survive the first surgery. So they suggested that we take him home to love him for what little time he had left. And that was not an option for me. I couldn't fathom just giving up on my baby. And I was willing to do anything. So they suggested, well, I say I, my husband and I, I have a husband who is completely supportive and was fabulous throughout the entire ordeal. So I don't want to exclude him from this, but they did recommend an experimental, at that time it was called an experimental procedure that they called the Norwood procedure. And they said the problem with that was that even if my baby survived that, that only one in four babies who survived the Norwood at that time in the 90s lived to age five. So While we were waiting for my two-month-old baby to come out of surgery, my family and I were planning a five-year-old birthday party. Let's go back to the Norwood procedure. Can you explain a little bit more about what that was? And is it still a a procedure used today? You know, It is a procedure that's used today. Dr. William Norwood is the gentleman who created that. And he was at He either originated in Boston and then moved to Philly to CHOP Children's Hospital, or he started at CHOP and then moved to Boston. I can't remember. He he worked at both of those hospitals, not too far apart in time, I don't believe. And 
he was not the only person working on a solution for children with hypoplastic left heart syndrome, but he was the first one to make major inroads and to have success that was reported in the journals. And once he popularized his procedure, then other doctors started doing it as well. Unfortunately, he was considered a maverick. Doctors felt that what he was doing was unethical because they didn't know if these kids would survive. And of course, it's painful to have open heart surgery. So in this open heart surgery, they place a shunt a Blaylock Tossig Thomas shunt or Blaylock Thomas Tossig shunt, BTT shunt okay. in the baby to allow more blood flow. Now, my baby had blood flowing in different parts of the heart because my baby had a lot of holes in the heart. They, uh, my baby had what's called a PFO, which is a patent foramen ovale, a PDA, which is a patent ductus arteriosus, a humongous VSD, which is a ventricular septal defect, and an ASD, which is an atrial septal defect. So my baby's heart was kind of like a Swiss cheese heart. I was just thinking that analogy. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, my baby also had what's called transposition of the great vessels. And so that's where the two major vessels are switched. And normally your left ventricle is your big ventricle. And that's the ventricle that pumps the blood to the entire body. And the right ventricle is a little bit smaller and it looks different because the right ventricle only has to pump blood to the lungs. And your lungs are so close to your heart, it doesn't have to work as hard. The valves between don't carry as heavy a load. The aorta carries a really heavy load because it has to pump blood throughout the entire body. Well, my child's left ventricle pretty much didn't exist. They said it was at the embryonic stage, which is really a scary thing to hear. Oh, yeah. When you know that that's the ventricle that's responsible for pumping blood to the entire body. But because my baby had transposition, the bigger ventricle was actually doing the work that the left ventricle should have been doing. And that's how my baby was able to stay alive for two months without being diagnosed. So for two months, my husband and I had kept saying something was wrong and For every complaint we had, they had an excuse why everything was fine and and basically treated us like we were overprotective parents. So when my husband was concerned the second Alexander was born that he had such rapid breathing, they said, oh, no, 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 that's just newborn breathing. It's okay. But that went on for eight weeks. And after a couple of weeks, my husband said, he's not a newborn anymore. This, I don't think he should be breathing that hard. By the time my baby's condition was diagnosed, when he would breathe, he would breathe so deeply, Boots, that you could see a cleft in his chest. That's how hard he was breathing and fast. And he never was blue because of all the mixing of the blood, but he was yellow. He had jaundice. So I kept taking the baby back and forth to newborn follow-up. But even though he was jaundiced, he was never yellow enough for the billy lights. Had he been yellow enough for the billy lights, they would have put him under the lights. They would have seen that he wasn't peeking up because his body was working so hard just to stay alive. And then we would have known, but he was never that yellow. And so when I was expressing concern about him being yellow, they said, ah, it's just breast milk jaundice. So they didn't worry about that. When I was worried because he didn't wake up crying, 
to eat or with a wet diaper. They said, oh, he was born three weeks early. He still thinks he's inside of you. When I complained to the lactation consultants that he wasn't nursing, that he would fall asleep after just a few minutes, they said the same thing. Oh, he's just a lamb. He thinks he's still inside of you. And so every single time I voiced a concern or my husband voiced a concern, they just treated us like we didn't know what we were talking about, even though I had a three-year-old son at the time. So it's not like this was my first baby. I had been through this before. And when I objected that way, they said, oh, every child is different. Don't compare him to your other son. So I did not feel very validated. And the worst part was that I was seeing doctors at the same hospital where my husband was a nurse. So I didn't think I could go to any other hospital and be treated any differently. Now I know better. Now I would go to another hospital in a heartbeat. But I thought, where would we receive better care than the place where my husband is working? I'm just struck by that. And through all my conversations I've had with fellow heart warriors and heart uh, caregivers, I hear stories similar to this more times than should be allowed. And I know, right? The amount of gaslighting that happens in the medical industry, and at times it feels like an industry, is is really hard. And I'd like to think that people just want to assume the best of their patients and like they genuinely wanted to assume your baby was just a lamb. But it's like there comes a time where you really have to listen to the patient to the patients because the patient knows best. Okay. Yeah, I'm like I wish that had been so. And we we considered suing the hospital just because We wanted to bring that much awareness to the hospital to let them know because there were so many opportunities. I don't even know how many lactation consultants I saw. I know I saw at least three or four. All the different nurses I saw in newborn follow-up, I wanted to educate them so they wouldn't make this mistake again. And what was really heartbreaking was that we had Alexander in August And I want to say it was in September that one of Frank's co-workers gave birth to a baby and that baby died. And they said the baby died of SIDS shortly after the baby was born, just a couple of weeks, maybe a month. And I said to Frank, oh my gosh, do you think that baby had a heart defect that was not diagnosed? And do you think we're doing a disservice to the people who are going to this hospital by not coming forward and, you know, shaking the, the people that work at the hospital, kind of shaking them up a little bit and saying, look, now that I've written a book, over a year later, I decided to write a book about hypoplastic left heart syndrome. I called it hypoplastic left heart syndrome, a handbook for parents. And the reason I did it was because I was so afraid that I would miss some kind of red flag. I was so afraid that there would be something that was obvious that I missed and I I would be the cause of my child's death. And that's why I wrote the book. When I finished the book, I gave it to my dad to read. And he said, Anna, it's not done yet. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, you have to tell Alex's story. It won't be complete until you tell Alex's story. And I said, but dad, everybody's experience is different. Mine, hopefully, is not going to be repeated by anybody else. So you said, it doesn't matter. People aren't going to care how much you know. 
you know, about all these different things that you've said until they know that you've walked in their shoes. So I did. I had to go to San Antonio every three months for a while, and then it was every six months for Alexander to be checked. And so we were at my parents' house. I lived three hours away from there. The boys and I were at my dad's house, and I had brought my laptop. And in one night, I just cried out Alex's story. I just was sobbing. Thank goodness I could touch type. Sobbing as I recalled all the different details that involved us going through the diagnosis and going through the first surgery and the second surgery and where we were then. I mean, at least it had a happy ending. We're so lucky that we had a happy ending. And I typed everything up, used my dad's printer, printed it up, put it on his recliner because I knew when he got up in the morning, that was the first thing he did was grab a cup of coffee and sit in his recliner. And I had stayed up all night working on that. So I was sleeping in. And when I woke up the next morning, there was a little post-it note. I really wish I had saved it. There was a little post-it note on the paper that said, now your book is done. Aww. It was so rewarding for my dad to do that for me. So now I know after having put this book together, my kid had all the classic symptoms of left-sided heart failure. And let's let's review those again for our listeners. Okay, so, so the rapid breathing, yeah. mm -hmm. which is called tachypnea, the rapid heartbeat, which is tachycardia. See, because he was a newborn, they just chalked that up to being a baby, and babies do have faster heart rates than adults do. The jaundice, the lethargy, not feeding well, not gaining weight. All of those were classic symptoms. Now, one of the symptoms I did not know, and it wasn't really pertinent to my baby because my baby was only two months old, and this doesn't usually show up for much longer than that, is what's called clubbing of the fingers and toes. My baby wasn't really old enough to show that, but you can see where when there's not enough oxygen getting to the tips of the fingers and toes, they look different. And my baby wasn't old enough to have had that much damage yet. So he didn't really have clubbing of the fingers and toes like you might see if you were to Google that. And he wasn't really cyanotic because he had so many holes in his heart. Most babies who have hypoplastic left heart syndrome also have valve problems. And I was really lucky that my son did not. So he wasn't a classic case of HLHS. Most, I would be willing to wager that most babies with HLHS don't have transposition of the great vessels. And that's really what helped him to survive. So now they don't call him an HLHS survivor. They call him a single ventricle survivor. Okay. And now we don't say him, we say her because a little over a year ago, Alexander transition is a little over a year ago. Alexander told me that he identifies as a woman now and he's going through that transition process. But it's hard for me to look back then and call that baby Hope because the baby was Alex and all the writing I did and the books I published and everything say Alexander. So it's a little disconcerting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but if you hear me say Hope or Alex, it's the same person. I only have one child with a heart defect. I'm really yeah. lucky my older son does not have any heart problems. And that's probably a whole separate podcast of of having a child transition. <laughs> it was. Yeah. Yeah. I actually um, had Hope come on my show and we talked about that. And it oh, was great. 
It was really interesting. And I'm super excited, Boots. You're the first one for me to say this to publicly. Hope and I are going to write a book together. Tell me more. I'm I'm super excited about this. We just, Monday, and today's Wednesday, so just two days ago, we had a working lunch together, and we mapped out, we completely outlined a book. So I'm super excited. And we came up with a tentative title. So yeah, we're making progress on that. And our hope is to release it next year during Pride Month. Oh, that's beautiful. Wow. And, you know, I'm hearing so much heartache and fear of losing Alex so young and that the rage of, of the, at the medical community that you had built so much trust in. And then to hear that hope now hope has come into her twenties, right. And is living is, is thriving and doing well, like that's amazing. But I want to go back and walk through that journey a little bit more, if you're willing uh, for the parents who may be in this process at the moment. So you mentioned that Alex had a couple of different surgeries. I think it's even more than two based on past conversations we've had. Can you walk us through like the timeline? Sure. So at two months old, Alexander's heart defect was diagnosed and he had a modified Norwood procedure. So he had a shunt, a Blaylock Tussic Thomas shunt that was put into his heart. Normally at this time, they will also do some other things that weren't necessary because Alex already had a huge ventricular septal defect and he also had an atrial septal defect. Some, in most cases of children who have HLHS, they don't have an opening. And so the doctors will go in and add that opening. They didn't have to add any openings. Alex had plenty of those. And his, thankfully, all of his valves were good. A lot of times babies who have HLHS do not have good valves. But the major thing that they do with that Norwood is they make what's called a neo-aorta. And I don't really want to go into more depth than that. But what I'd like to do instead is talk about the second surgery. So we knew when we opted for this experimental procedure that more than likely our child would need three open heart surgeries. And they would be scheduled, but not as far as like, at this time, you'll need this. And at that time, you'll need that. It wasn't like there was a certain period of time that needed to pass. What we had to do was gauge how Alexander was doing as he was growing and as he was becoming more cyanotic. So after the first surgery, his saturation levels were in the 80s. For a lot of people, that would be a huge red flag that there's something wrong to just be saturating, having an oxygen saturation in the 80s. But for him, it was normal. And because of the way they were redesigning his heart, that was okay. His body was naturally producing more red blood cells. So he had to take aspirin because he was at risk for having a stroke with having extra red blood cells in his body. His body was adapting. His body was adapting. Exactly. But we knew that as he got older, he would become more and more cyanotic. And so there was a critical time when his saturations got to a certain level, then we knew it was time for the next surgery. And that time came pretty quickly. And the doctors had told me at that time 
that he would have what's called a bidirectional gland. Well, I was doing research for my new book for the hypoplastic left heart syndrome book. And while I was doing all of my research for the book, I was reading about a lot of babies who had heart transplants after the Norwood. And that these babies, it seemed like their life expectancy was greater. And so I talked to my child's surgeon and I said, why is it that I'm seeing that these babies who have transplants are living longer? And he said, well, Anna, did you look really closely at what they said? Because it's it's actuarial statistics. And I said, I wondered what that meant. I'd never seen that expression before. He said, that's what they project. When you look at the research that's done on the bidirectional gland and the Fontan, those are real statistics. Those are the statistics of the people who actually really did. But for the heart transplant, we have so few patients who have had them for hypoplastic left heart syndrome that they're just projecting how long these children will live. And he said, let's leave the heart transplant as the last ditch effort. As long as Alex's heart is strong enough to sustain life, let's work with his own native tissue. When you have transplant, you get a whole other bag of problems along with it. Oh, yeah. So I said, okay, well, I've been doing this other research, and I could, I'm seeing here this thing about a fenestrated Fontan. So can you tell me about a fenestrated Fontan? And he goes, sure. He said, we've started doing a fenestrated Fontan. It looks like fenestrated Fontans help the recipient to have a little pop-off valve, and that reduces the likelihood of a really serious consequence called protein-losing enteropathy. We can't be 100% sure that that will work, but it seems like the patients who get a fenestrated Fontan, which means a Fontan circulation with a little hole in it so that it it acts like a pop-off valve, that those people don't have the extreme pressures that the ones who don't have that pop-off valve do have, and that they're not developing protein-losing enteropathy. And we really don't want him to get that because you can die from protein-losing enteropathy. So I said, okay. So that sounds interesting. He said, yeah, but he said, you know what? We're going to do what's best for Alex. You need to trust us. The bidirectional gland is the way to go. We have like a 90% success rate with the bidirectional gland. Let's do the bidirectional gland. And the bidirectional gland is also called a hemifontian. So the plan was for them to go in when we saw he was too cyanotic and they would take the top part of his body and they would connect it so that the pulmonary, the pulmonary arteries and the, wait, I'm sorry. Let me get my book. I haven't had to sure. explain this in a long time. And as you're looking this up, I'm, you know, for the <laughs> listeners, I, I'm writing all these medical terms down. And the thing that I'm just, that I just keep thinking about is how you and Frank had to basically quickly become well-versed in so much medical terminology you never thought you'd have to know. Oh, absolutely. After Alexander survived the first surgery, they really made it sound pessimistic that he was going to, first of all, they made it sound like he wouldn't live to the surgery. Our doctor's appointment was on a Friday and we were in San Antonio 
that next morning. Well, it was a weekend and the doctor did not want to use weekend staff to operate on Alex. And he was in congestive heart failure by the time they diagnosed the condition. And so his heart went from the center of his chest all the way over to one side. It was huge, so congested and so swollen. And they said, we're going to use some drugs to try and pull some of the fluids off to give his heart a rest because it had been working so hard. He was intubated. They were feeding him through a feeding tube. It was heartbreaking because I had been nursing him. And even though I kind of felt like I was torturing him the way that I was nursing him, I was used to nursing my baby. And all of a sudden I had to use a breast pump. I had never done that before. So all of that was really hard. But then when he did survive the surgery, they said, you know, most babies... They, they don't make it. They, they don't make it to the next surgery. And they were really preparing me in a negative way that my baby wasn't going to make it. So they were completely shocked when he was discharged a week later. They had never had a baby with HLHS get discharged that quickly. They were shocked. But and I remember they were being so super cautious with him. And I was nursing at the time. So I was, my body was wanting to feed my baby. And I was in his room holding him and he started crying, which he never did this before. He started crying because he was hungry. Wow. And the intensivist came in and I said, Alex wants to eat. And they said, oh no, it's too soon. It's too soon. Meanwhile, my breasts are starting to leak right? because that's what happens. Your baby starts crying. Your breasts get prepared to, to feed them. And I, I could feel myself, you know, my body reacting to my baby's crying. And I said, no, I, I really think I need to feed him. Oh, no, no, it's too soon. You don't want him to vomit. You don't want him to, to take in and then he vomits. And that's really bad. He just had open heart surgery. And as soon as he left the room, I peeked around the, at this time we were all in open bays. They weren't actually rooms. There was just a little curtain. So I peeked around the corner and I saw the surgeon down the hall, right? So I ran down the hall and I said, Dr. Calhoun, Dr. Calhoun, Alex wants to eat. Alex is crying to eat. And he goes, feed the boy. I ran back to the bay and I... I put my baby to my breast and he latched on and he sucked with such vigor. I'm going to start crying. He had never, ever nursed that way. And I just, obviously, I just started crying because I thought I knew something was wrong. All those days that I had been nursing my baby, I knew something was wrong. And I really wish that I had trusted my mother's intuition because he was a different baby. And it, we weren't even a week out. He was a different baby. And when they saw that he could nurse and he was producing urine, I never realized how important urine was until the nurses were waiting after his surgery. And I said, what are you, why are you staring at the catheter? <laughs> they said, we're looking for the golden stream. We have to make sure his kidneys are still working. And when we saw that golden stream, we all cheered. <laughs> never thought I would cheer to see my baby urinate. But yeah, it was so exciting. And so yeah, a week after the surgery, we were discharged to go home. However, because we lived three hours away from the hospital where he had surgery, they said, we don't want you to go that far. Luckily, my parents lived in San Antonio. And so I just went to stay with them. And I had to bring Alexander back. I'll be honest with you. My son's cardiologist did not like the fact that I was nursing. 
He felt immediately that the baby needed to be put on formula. He wanted to measure every ounce that was going in my baby. He wanted to measure all the wet diapers so that we could see how he was doing. And I was unwilling to do that. This is one case where I really stood up for myself and I'm really happy I did. And I said to him, do you know the benefits of breastfeeding? My body is going to produce antibodies for my baby that are not available in breast milk. My body is going to be able to do more for my baby than anything you can buy off the shelf. And he was very reluctant to let me do it, but I wasn't taking no for an answer. And his nurse took me to the side when he wasn't there. And she said, okay, we need to fatten Alex up. He's worried because my baby was labeled failure to thrive. You were asking about symptoms before. That's another symptom is failure to thrive where they're not gaining enough weight. And she said, if he doesn't start gaining enough weight, the doctor's not going to give you an option. You're going to have to stop nursing. And I said, okay, well, how long do you think I have? And she said, well, let's just take it day by day. And so by the time Alex was three months old, we were able to go back home before then. And I, I had a hungry baby. I had a little boy who was decided to make up for lost time. And I had started Joey on cereal by the time he was three months old. So I decided to start Alex on cereal. And Glorianne, my cardiologist nurse, said, stick a little bit of K-Rose syrup in there. I said, what? And she said, "Eh, that'll give us some extra calories. We're going to fatten this baby up. And I said, but won't you want everything to taste sweet? And she said, no, don't don't put a whole lot, but let's just put a little bit in his cereal and then let's see what happens. Well, he had his surgery in October. And by December, I had a butterball baby with pinchable cheeks. Oh, my God. The doctor, the the cardiologist didn't believe it was the same baby. He was thriving. And so when he was thriving, I said to Frank, he's going to make it to the next surgery. Our our child is going to make it. And I need to do research. Because now that I know he's going to make it, now that he is doing so well, he started regaining those developmental milestones. He wasn't crawling. Um, I think it hurt too much to be on his chest, but he was rolling over. He was sitting up. He was grabbing for things. He was babbling. All those things that, you know, just warm a mother's heart. He was doing everything. So he was even starting to say words. We were getting closer and closer. Months were going by. I was working on the book. I was learning so much more about these surgeries. That's why I asked the doctor, maybe transplant. And I was being told no. So with the Hemi Fontaine, let's get back real quick yeah, since yeah. I have my book yeah. here. They, they attach the superior vena cava to the pulmonary artery, which seems like magic, right? That they can do this. It, all of this is magic to me, Anna. I know. It really is magical, right? So that's that's a big deal. Yeah. So that's a Hemi Fontaine is attaching the superior vena cava to the pulmonary artery. The full Fontaine... Then they take the inferior vena cava and attach that. They they use a baffle. It's amazing. They create a baffle and they do it a little differently now if you have an extra cardiac fontan. Way back in the 90s, they didn't have an extra cardiac fontan, so they did what's called an intracardiac fontan. And they use Gore-Tex and they make a baffle so that the heart now acts like a two-chamber pumping heart. 
kind of like a frog's heart. And instead of the heart actually pumping blood to the lungs, doesn't do that. With the connections that it has, it actually travels to the lungs passively based on the child's heart pressures, which to me, if that's not a miracle, I don't know what wow. is. So wow. the entire purpose of the heart is to pump blood to the body. That's all the, the heart does. It just pumps the blood to the body and the blood and the blood travels passively to the lungs to get oxygenated and come back. So to me, like I said, sounds like a, a miracle, right? And they were like, okay, the Hemifontan, 90% success rate. We're going to go with the Hemifontan or bidirectional gland, whichever you want to call it. And then maybe in a couple of years, he'll have the Fontan. And yeah, we're really hopeful. He's, he's growing. He's doing really well. And the cardiologist was not happy that I was asking questions. He said, you know, most people just trust their children's doctors. And I said, I do trust you. I would not be doing my job as a mother if I didn't research and make sure that I'm doing the very best I can for my child. So, well, and Anna, the, I could interrupt. It's not like mm -hmm. you were set up to trust doctors at the start with this child. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I, I felt remiss that I hadn't done more those first two months of Alex's life, but to be honest with you, I was just working, I was working so hard just to get calories in my baby, just feeding him. It was like torture. I, I set alarms for myself every three hours. I was nursing him because he nursed for such a short period of time that I, I had to do that or else he wouldn't have had enough calories. So anyway, so then the time for surgery came. I'm feeling a lot more confident now. I understand the surgeries. First surgery really was an emergency procedure, even though we had to wait the weekend. During that weekend wait, I wasn't doing research. I was praying. You know, I, mm -hmm. I didn't have the wherewithal. I was in shock. It, it was very traumatic to ride in an ambulance from Temple, Texas to San Antonio. That was a really long drive. And I didn't find out until much later that the tech who did well, the tech or the doctor who worked on my child to do the echocardiogram and who realized that the baby's heart was enlarged and that there were this many problems, that person took my husband to the side and said, I'm so sorry, Frank. I'm so sorry. I've never seen anything this bad. Your baby's not going to make it to, alive to the hospital. My husband waited a year to tell me that. I did not know that when Frank said goodbye to Alex and me, he thought he was never going to see Alex alive again. So there was a lot of trauma that was involved in what we were experiencing, more so for Frank in some ways than for me. Although for me, what was really traumatic was they let me hold a breathing tube near him the whole way down to the hospital. And I was just chatting with the people in the back of the ambulance. Now, unbeknownst to me, since it was my very first time riding in an ambulance, I thought all babies who travel from one hospital to another had a doctor on board. Apparently, that's not common. <laughs> I know now that they thought my baby was going to crash. That's why they sent a doctor along with me. I didn't know that. They kept me in the dark about that, and that's probably a good thing. Yeah. What was disconcerting was that I was having this very amiable, lighthearted, considering the, the 
seriousness of what we were doing conversation with the two people in the back of the ambulance with me. And then when we got to San Antonio, all of a sudden, everybody acted like he was dying. They snatched him up, you know, and they immediately took him back and put him in another bed. They're hooking all this equipment and stuff up to him and literally pushing me to the back of the room. And they were asking questions. And I thought I was supposed to answer because before this time, you know, I was always the one who answered questions about him. They didn't want to talk to me. They wanted to only talk to the doctor and the nurse. And I found out much, much later when the baby was having the second surgery, the only thing the admitting hospital had been told was that there was a two-month-old hypoplastic left heart syndrome baby. Or not, no, they didn't know hypoplastic left heart syndrome. At that time, they weren't sure. They said there was a two-month-old baby in congestive heart failure. And the assumption was that I was an abusive mother. And that's why they were pushing me to the back. I did not know until we went in for the second surgery. And at that time, Alexander was 10 months old. And they said, we all thought that you were an abusive mother. And it wasn't until you told us your story and how you kept saying something was wrong, how you kept taking the baby back to newborn follow-up and taking the baby to the pediatrician and asking questions. At that time, my husband was working as an emergency room nurse. And I would take Joey and Alex up to the hospital and bring Frank dinner. He was a night nurse. And I would do that a couple of times a week. And every single time I brought Alexander to the hospital, Frank would grab a nurse or he would grab a doctor and he would say, look at the way Alex is breathing. This doesn't look right, does it? And the doctors would always defer. Well, what does the pediatrician say? And the pediatrician said not to compare him to, to Joey yeah. until, until three days before his second month well baby checkup. Frank grabbed a doctor he really, really trusted and really liked and hadn't seen Alex before. And he said, look at, at how Alex is breathing. He's almost eight weeks old. This can't be newborn breathing. It can't be. Look at the way he's breathing. And the doctor watched him. And like I said, you could see a cleft in his chest when he would breathe. He was breathing so hard. And the doctor said to me, how much longer is it before he has his next checkup? And I yeah. said, three days. And he watched him a little bit longer and he said he should be okay until then. Wow. But that should have been a huge red flag to oh, me yeah. to run to some other hospital somewhere else where somebody yeah. might do something different. And that doctor felt so bad after Alex's diagnosis. He couldn't even look at my husband for months. And, and like I said, we considered possibly suing the hospital just to bring awareness, just to train everybody because we knew this wasn't as rare as we thought it was. We found out it's the most common birth defect and that this is the birth defect that kills more babies under the age of one than any other birth defect. So after our baby's diagnosis, we learned so much more. We thought, I don't think everybody at this hospital knows this. But ultimately, we, we, we knew it wouldn't have the result that we wanted. It would probably just make people angry. I offered to go and talk to the nurses at newborn follow-up and to talk to the pediatricians and just share my story. They refused to, to allow me to do that. And uh, they told Frank that if we sued the hospital, he would not be allowed to work for that hospital any longer. And we needed insurance. We had to have insurance for our baby. We had 
two more surgeries coming up. So we decided ultimately not to sue the hospital. And I think that was a good decision, but we felt terrible. When his coworker lost her baby, we felt terrible and we wondered if maybe we made a mistake in not drawing more attention to the misdiagnosis. I call it a misdiagnosis for them to constantly tell us that everything we were observing was wrong. So anyway, let's fast forward. Yeah, so yeah. he is growing now. All of a sudden, he's on the birth charts. Yay! Before he was in the, you know, bottom fifth percentile. Now all of a sudden, he was in the fiftieth percentile, which may not sound great, but hey, when you're practically off the charts, fifty percent sounds really good. And he was developing his own little personality, and he was starting to talk and say, "Mama, bye, bye, dad, dad." was really exciting to see him growing and having a relationship with his brother. He loved playing peekaboo with Joey and they would clap hands and we would sing songs together. It was, it was a magical time, but I could see my baby getting bluer and bluer and he was starting to labor more. And I knew it was, it was almost time. And so I knew we were getting closer and closer. We had a time scheduled uh, to, to have the surgery. And I lived out in the country. I lived on two thirds of an acre of land. And I knew that we could be gone for weeks. So one spring morning, I mowed the grass, which you wouldn't think would be a problem. But the next morning, Alex woke up with a runny nose. So I took him to the pediatrician and I was very concerned. I really felt it was allergies just from having mown the grass. He didn't have a fever. He wasn't fussy. He was still nursing. He was doing everything fine, but he did have a runny nose and they canceled the surgery. Boots, I can't tell you how horrible I felt about this because what if he died before that second surgery? It was all my fault because I mowed the grass. You know, it was awful. I begged them to reconsider and to just keep, we still had a week, you know, or five or six days. I begged them to just keep it. And then when we showed up, if he still had a runny nose, then we could cancel it. But they wouldn't do that. They canceled it. And they rescheduled it for two weeks, two weeks later. And I just prayed so hard that I didn't kill my baby just mowing the grass. You wouldn't, nobody would think that doing something that innocuous would um, have those kind of ramifications, but I think I think that was meant to be because he had two more weeks to grow and get a little stronger. And the surgeon went in, and before he went in, he said, "You and I had a talk about transplant being the last ditch effort." He said, "But we also talked about the bidirectional gland, and you talked about the fenestrated fontium with me." And I said, "Yes," and he said. I want you to know I'm going to do what's best for Alex. Right now, the plan is to do the hemifontian, and there's a 90% success rate at this hospital with that procedure. He said, but I may do something else. And I said, okay. And I trusted Dr. John Calhoun. I would trust him with my life. I trusted him with my baby's life. And what, which hospital was this at? University Hospital in San Antonio. Okay. So we went to the waiting room, and they told us, how long they thought it was going to be. I think they had said it was going to be about six hours. And four hours came and went. With the first surgery, they were really, really good about calling like every hour or so to let us know how things were going. And with this one, 
they started, okay, we, we've done the induction. Okay. You know, we've done this or that. And then three hours went by and we didn't hear anything. I'm starting to panic. Mm -hmm. And finally a nurse came out and she said, Anna, you know, Dr. Calhoun said that he might do something else. And I said, yes. And she said, he's doing something else and he'll be out to talk to you when it's done. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I was panicked that because I had done all this research and I had made suggestions to a surgeon, like, who am I? But that maybe if something went wrong, that it would be my fault because I didn't just trust the doctor, like my son's cardiologist had said. And it wasn't that I didn't trust my doctor. I was just trying to do as much research as I could. So, you know, I'm sitting in the waiting room and I'm praying to God to just be with that surgeon and all the people that were watching over him and just for Alex to be strong. And Dr. Calhoun came in, it was eight hours later. Oh my God. And he said, um, hey, Anna, we did the fenestrate of Fontana on Alex. He doesn't have to have a third surgery. He said, I combined the second and third surgery. He said, Alex's heart looked pretty good, and um, but there was some concern. He said, because when I cut into the sternum, he had so much scar tissue that the heart was adhered to the sternum. And I was afraid that if I had to go back a third time, that we would we would hit the heart, that we would cut the heart. He said, I believe Alex can make it, but there's no research. He said, I don't know any other babies this age that have had this procedure. He said, but I believe in Alex. And, you know, I knew if that great man believed that my kid could make it, that I could believe that he would make it. And he did. So he surprised everyone, but not without a lot of complications. He had serious pleural effusions, which is very common with the Fontan procedure. That's where you have fluids that are coming out of your pleural area. Um, and that went on way longer than it did with the first surgery. It went on for two weeks. But uh, the other problem was that his diaphragm was paralyzed and his vocal cords were paralyzed. So my baby who went in saying, Mama, bye-bye, Dada, came out and had no voice whatsoever. We would see him cry and you couldn't hear anything. And he was, uh, he was completely oxygen dependent because of his diaphragm. And the surgeon told me this could be temporary or it could be permanent. He may have to have an oxygen concentrator for the rest of his life, but we really hope it's just a temporary problem and that his diaphragm will come back. But before we could go home, we had to secure an oxygen concentrator for our house. And then we also had a portable oxygen concentrator for in the, in the car. And so how long were y'all in the hospital before you were sent home with the oxygen concentrator? Two weeks. It felt like a lot longer than that, Boots. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but that. it was two weeks, which and is short. I talked to so many people who will be in there for months. And the fact oh, wow. that okay. Alex was strong enough mm -hmm. to, to come out in two weeks is remarkable. It actually really is. And it's a testament to Dr. John Calhoun and his amazing team. He had a fantastic, still does. He has the same pediatric anesthetist, which is amazing because the anesthesi or anesthesiologist, pediatric anesthesiologist, 
because the anesthesiologist's job is to take a person as close to death as possible and then wake them up again. Right. So, and that's what my husband is now. Now my husband is a CRNA. When we started this journey so many years ago, he was an ER nurse. And then as Alex grew older, he became an ICU nurse. And then when Alex was four, we felt that Alex was strong and he was, he was going to be okay. Had his we diaphragm to, and his vocal cords woken up? Within a year. Within his a year. diaphragm and his vocal cords were completely back to normal. Actually, the diaphragm healed within a couple months, but it took about a year before his vocal cords were completely repaired. How long was now, he on that oxygen concentrator then? Just a month? For a couple of, a couple of extra months. Okay. It was like two or three months. Well, fair enough. It, I was really worried, Boots. I was really worried that that might be something he has to live with for the rest of his life. But now his his diaphragm repaired itself, which is just amazing to me. It took a lot longer for the vocal cords. And when I said to the doctor, okay, so I went back to the cardiologist and I said, you know, Alex is doing so much better. He's off of oxygen, but he's still not talking and the doctor said, well, he's alive, isn't he? And I said, well, yes. And my background is in speech pathology and I'm going to keep working with him. And then I remember praying every single day, God, just give me something to work with. I have this background in speech pathology. I had all my textbooks. I was looking through my textbooks to see what I could do to help my baby. And I said, if you just give me something, then I, I can work with that. I just need something. And so one day I went in to to wake Alex up. It was it was time for it to start our morning routine. And he was laying in bed. He was fussing. But of course, you know, he had no voice, so I couldn't hear him. But I, I went and I got closer to his crib and he went Pew! like a little kitten. Pew! Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I said, God, that is not the sound I was talking about. <laughs> I, was, I couldn't believe it. I said, my kid's sounding like a kitten. This is not the sound I was talking about. But you know what? It was a starting point. I said, point. this is what you get. This is a starting point. This is what you get. So I worked with it. And what I discovered really quickly was that Alex had a stroke. Alex had all the classic symptoms of having a stroke in his left temporal lobe. Oh. He was trying to speak on an inhalation of air. That's the one that I remember the most. That that was the, the standout quality. And his receptive language was not affected whatsoever. He could still play peekaboo. He still knew Itsy Bitsy Spider and all the games that we had played. He remembered all of that. And, it, and he could obey simple commands just like he did before he went into the surgery. But he had no expressive language. Okay. And... So when I went to see the doctor, the pediatric cardiologist, I said, I think Alex has had a stroke. And he said, well, what makes you think that? And I said, well, he's speaking like a stroke patient. I had a class in aphasia and I still have my textbook and he has all the classic symptoms. And he said, well, he's alive, isn't he? Again, that was, his, that was always his fallback thing to say to me. Well, he's alive, isn't he? And I said, yes. And I know from my studies that thankfully brains are pretty elastic, especially babies' brains, and we can retrain his brain how to speak. But I just, I was really disappointed not to have more support. Mm -hmm. You know, 
now things are totally different. Now they recognize there's a neurocardiac connection and they even do testing pre and post-op. They didn't do any of that back then. And they acted a little disdainful of what I was sharing with them. So when Alex was 16, Boston Children's Hospital did a study on the brains of Fontan patients. And I said to Alex, hey, there's a study going on in Boston. They want to look at the brains of people who have had the Fontan. It's for teenagers only. I said, they're willing to fly us up there and they'll even give you a stipend. But you'll have to go through a series of tests and an MRI and they'll interview your teachers and, and they'll you know, talk to you and they'll interview your parents. And he said, okay, if it'll help somebody else, okay, I'll do that. So before we went in, I said to the lead doctor, I believe Alexander had a stroke in his left temporal lobe. And she asked me why. And I explained. And she said, okay, they did an MRI. And when she came out, she said, Emma, there was a stroke in the left temporal lobe. It was a small stroke, but you're right. There was a stroke there. And it made it, it was the first time I really felt validated, you know, <laughs> it's like, okay, I was right. <laughs> you know, listeners, as we've been having Anna and I've been having this conversation there's moments I haven't been able to breathe because it's like I'm going through all these emotions of awe and wonder of the human condition and how we can survive what seems to be like what should be in our brain like this unsurvivable situation and then I'm just thinking about Anna and Frank Alex's parents and how they had to endure so much medical trauma as parents and then also still be mom and dad to the older sibling, Joey, and learn how to navigate a medical system that seemingly was not set up to help Alex be successful. And I just keep thinking of these questions of like, how are we doing better as a, as a medical community? And like, yeah. and I'm sure there's still room to grow, but let's, let's pivot a little, Anna, for the sake of time. And okay. So, you know, Alex went through that when he was 16 and he went through all that testing, you discovered he had had the stroke and obviously he had a successful childhood. He, he is now she thriving as hope. And you have taken a really traumatic situation and are paying it forward leaps and bounds. And I am just in awe of you that you are able to calmly tell me this story and all the good work you are doing in spite of it all. Uh, you are so sweet to say that. It's it's funny, but I really feel that God gave me Alexander in a mission. Well, that it, mission that's clear. Was to, yeah. Well, the, and that mission was to use the incredible education I received at Our Lady of the Lake University in speech pathology, and then later on at the University of Texas at Austin in speech pathology and deaf education. Because what I didn't tell you was before his vocal cords were able to he be completely healed. And I am very, very thankful that they were because I know of some people whose vocal cords never heal. Alexander's vocal cords were healing, but they weren't healing fast. It took a long time before they were healed. Meanwhile, I had a little boy who wanted to communicate and he couldn't. He made that little kitten sound for a long time. Joseph was my very best 
ever assistant in speech pathology, we played speech games all day and all night. And Joseph Joey was Joey. the best assistant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Joey, Joseph. Yeah, mm -hmm. we call, yeah, I call him Joey mostly. Mm -hmm. But the first thing we had to do was to help Alex understand he, he had to breathe out. You know, he had to speak on an exhalation of air instead of an inhalation of air. So I bought pinwheels and bubbles and we went outside and blew dandelion seeds everywhere, even though I knew I'd have more dandelions in my yard. It didn't matter. We blew anything and everything we could. Pieces of paper. I mean, and Joey was always a willing participant. He was three years older than his brother. He adored his baby brother. And I just tried to make it games. I just tried to make it all fun. And Joey was there and anything Joey did, Alex wanted to do. So that was really, really helpful. But Despite that, despite all the games that we played and, and working on speech and language all day long, Alex just physically couldn't communicate the way he wanted to. And I ended up bridging the gap by teaching him sign language. Now, I had taught Joey sign language because I was a teacher of the deaf and hard of hearing before I got pregnant. And so all of my coworkers and all of my students saw AMJ is what they called me at the school for the deaf. AMJ getting bigger and bigger and bigger with baby. I had a baby in August, right? But I wasn't going back to school the next year. So I know all of my kids were like, wait, what about the baby? What about the baby? So of course, I had to take the baby back to the school for the deaf to see all my friends, my coworkers, my students. And the cool thing was that I had been so accustomed to signing all day long that even though I wasn't in the classroom, when I was talking with Joey unconsciously, I was signing all the time. So Joey's first intelligible word was not spoken. It was milk. And it was just, <laughs> it was a very, milk is a very iconic sign. And the thing that was really cool was I remembered reading about the development, language development of children who are hard of hearing and deaf. And they talked about how when they first learned sign language, some of the quote unquote mistakes they would make. So to make an American sign language, to make the word mother, you have your hand in like a five position and your thumb touches the bottom of your chin. But for babies who are hard of hearing or deaf, when they're first learning, or hearing children of parents who are deaf, who are signing all of the time, it's very common for them to take their pointer finger and put their pointer finger on their chin. And that's mama. And Joey did that. I was like, oh my gosh, my kid's developing language just like <laughs> a child of a deaf parent or a child who's hard of hearing. And so that was really kind of sweet that when I would go back to the school for the deaf and visit my friends, my baby would sign milk and he would sign mama. And they were like, oh my gosh, they just fawned over Joey. They thought it was great. So Joey grew up learning sign language. But by the time I had Alex, I was experiencing so much trouble just feeding him and taking care of him. I wasn't signing with him. I was just, I was kind of like on auto, autopilot, just surviving. So when we came home from that second surgery and he was aphonic and we were trying to get him to breathe and to speak, I said to Frank, either we have to take him to another speech pathologist because he's not responding to the speech therapy I'm doing with him, or I'm going to introduce sign language. And at first, Frank was very reluctant. And he said, Anna, I, I'm not going to be able to understand him. And I said, honey, you've been around my deaf friends for years. I said, you know 
basic signs. You know way more than you think you do. And you're going to be learning at the same time as Alex. You'll be fine. So reluctantly, he said, okay, because he really didn't want me to take Alex to a different speech pathologist. He didn't think anybody else would do anything for Alex that I wasn't doing already. And so sign language was our bridge. That's why I really do feel God prepared me all my life for having Alexander. And all those classes that I took in speech therapy that I knew I never wanted to be a speech therapist, I needed those classes because if I hadn't had those aphasia classes, I wouldn't have known that Alex had a stroke and I might not have been able to work with him with as much confidence as I was able to work with him. And it's just, I I really have felt that that's my mission. And I'm so lucky that I'm married to a husband who believes that the most important job that I could have for the two of us was not one that was earning money, but it was one where I was taking care of our children. And then after that, instead of going back into the workforce and earning a salary, which most people would expect you to do, he felt that the best thing for me to do was to run the nonprofit and to help other people in our community. And I love the name of your nonprofit. Thank you. Hearts Unite the Globe. Anne-Marie Carl, who is the lawyer that I consulted when I decided to put together a nonprofit, said to me, when you're picking the name for your nonprofit, you want it to have an acronym that is fun and easy to remember. Mm-hmm. And so our acronym is HUG. And I yeah. said, this is easy to remember. <laughs> Everyone needs a HUG, right? Yeah. So, yeah, that's why we chose Hearts Unite the Globe, so that we could give everybody a hug. If anybody needs a hug, it's someone in the heart community, right, Boots? Seriously, <laughs> sister. And, you know, the first time Anna and I connected via phone, I felt like I was receiving a hug from her. We were Aww. we were trying to connect so I could go on to Anna's podcast, Heart to Heart with Anna. And I was in my van in Canada and <laughs> hadn't showered in days. And I was like, I, I just can't quite do it yet. I don't have a, a quality connection. And we ended up talking for like almost an hour and it just felt like my mom is deceased. And it was just like, I, it was just such a healing conversation. And I mean, that's the whole point of my podcast is that when people listen to each episode, they find hope and healing and Anna feels like a hug and so does her organization. Aww. And so Anna, how do we find heart hearts unite the globe how do we find you on the internet and tell me a little bit more about the mission and and all of that sure so heartsunitetheglobe.org is our website www.heartsunitetheglobe.org and that's where you'll see our podcast i never thought i would be a podcaster boots i know most people don't believe this when they hear me but i'm actually an introvert i'm a very serious introvert (laughs) but i realized after i wrote my book And I actually wrote two other books after that. I wrote The Heart of a Mother and I wrote My Brother Needs an Operation. That's Joey's book. The Heart of a Mother is the story of over 60 women from around the world who were living with congenital heart defects in one capacity or another. I have a whole chapter by grandmothers, which is one of my favorite chapters. I also have a chapter which I never would have even dreamed of putting together. It's a chapter by mothers who were born with congenital heart defects. And you know, when they were being so negative with Alex's prognosis, I never would have believed that I would have people who had single ventricle hearts writing for a chapter for me about becoming a mother. So that was a dream come true for me. And after I put together several books, I started having people ask me to speak. 
And it's one thing to write. An introvert does fine with writing, but speaking is not so easy for an introvert. And I just realized that, again, God gave me this mission, and this mission was more important than me myself. And I just had to join Toastmasters to give myself the skills to overcome feeling so shy and being such an introvert and to find my voice. So through all of what I have experienced, it's actually helped me to grow as a person. And I've learned by working on another podcast called Bereaved But Still Me, what I have experienced is called post-traumatic growth. And you have too, Boots. Mm -hmm. That's where through our trauma, we end up growing stronger than we ever thought we would. And that is definitely what this experience has done for me. So here I am, a podcaster, never would have believed that I would sit here and tell you I have over 420 episodes, just amazing, and that I would be an executive producer of other podcasts. I am the executive producer for Bereave But Still Me, our bereavement podcast, to downplay the seriousness of living with a congenital heart defect would be a disservice to our community. And after I saw multiple friends losing their children way too early, I knew we needed to do a podcast that would give them a platform and allow them to share their stories. And I have Heart to Heart with Anna episodes where we have shared that, but I really felt they deserved their own podcast. And that's why we started a spinoff podcast called Heart to Heart with Michael, because Michael's daughter, Liel, died not as a result of her heart defect, but she was born with a really serious heart defect, which is how we became friends. Liel actually developed autism and epilepsy, which I did not know way back then that those commonly occurred together. She had a grand mal seizure, and that's what ended up killing her, taking her life. And Michael is a super quirky, fun guy. So I had him as a guest on my show, and I realized in interviewing him, a bereaved father, the way that he was able to communicate and still be so supportive and so uplifting in spite of suffering what I consider the worst trauma a parent can go through, and that is losing your child. I knew he would be the perfect host for a podcast. So I asked him if he would do it, and he said he would do three episodes on one condition. And the condition was a mutual friend of ours, Nancy Jensen, he said, has to be involved. She has to be the first guest on my program. And I said, okay, I'm looking for someone to do a whole year. So I want 12 episodes. And yes, you can have Nancy. (laughs) And he said, well, we'll do three and we'll see what happens. And here we are seven years later. And Nancy is a producer. (laughs) Nancy is a producer. We have not run out of stories. It's been amazing. We did change our focus. At first, it looked like we were only going to talk to heart families who had lost a child. So Nancy was the first episode, was was a guest on the first episode. Her daughter, Jessica, passed away before Michael's daughter, Liel, did. And that's how they became much, much closer. And when things were looking really dire, Michael reached out to Nancy and she kept all of the rest of us in the heart group apprised. So he wasn't having to say over and over again what was going on. The two of them would talk and then she would let the rest of us know what was happening. So she was a touchstone for Michael that was really, really crucial at a at a critical time in his life so she's family you know the three of us are family to one another 
And I kind of feel like that with you too, Boots. It's funny how once we start telling our stories and sharing with one another, we do feel like family. And in some cases, people in this community understand us better than our own bloodline family does. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because they haven't had that same experience and they haven't had to make the same decisions that we have. And then the second episode with, was with a dear, dear friend of mine, Sherry Turner. Her son died from hypoplastic left heart syndrome, but we did a wonderful episode on rainbow babies. And I had never heard that term before, but rainbow babies are babies who are born after a mother has suffered the loss of a child. So we did a beautiful episode on rainbow babies and then Nancy and Michael and Sherry. Sherry ended up being the script writer for that whole first season. We all got together and we realized that if every single episode was on the loss of a child with a congenital heart defect, that we weren't going to get out of bed in the morning. It was just too hard because we were reliving our own traumas over and over and over. And we decided instead to let Heart to Heart with Michael be more about loss in a more generic sense. And that was something that all four of us could get behind. After a couple of years, we changed the name from Heart to Heart with Michael, which we discovered people thought was a relationship podcast. <laughs> so the right audience was not finding us. We changed it to Bereed, but still me and our numbers doubled. <laughs> fancy that. And, and they continued to grow. Yeah, so fancy that. A bereavement podcast, not called Heart to Heart, but actually called Bereed, but still me. So yeah, so that has, that has done really, really well. And then... I am also the executive producer for Guerrero, Steph Corazon, and I'm sorry to the Latino world if I just butchered that name, but Warriors of the Heart, it's our Latino podcast for the heart community. So we have two amazing women, Belen Blanton, who is in her 50s living with a congenital heart defect, and from Venezuela originally, living in Florida now, and it's her dream to help the Latino community, especially the community in Venezuela. She has her own nonprofit, Estrelita de Belen, and she's going to be a guest on your program too, which yes. I'm super excited I about. Can't. She has an amazing, amazing story to share. And then Marta Raquel Montero is the co-host, and she is from Puerto Rico. She is amazing. She's an author. She is a fantastic heart mom, and I can't wait to go to Puerto Rico and meet her. That's on my bucket list, to go to Puerto Rico, just to meet Marta Montero. It'll be awesome. Wow. So I I do not speak Spanish, obviously, from the way I just butchered whatever I said, <laughs> but I do give it a try. I've been studying Spanish on Duolingo. I think I understand it better than I speak it, which is not uncommon with a foreign language. And then I just started another new podcast this year called the CHC Podcast, Congenital Heart Conversations. And I'm super excited about that because I wanted a podcast where I had co-hosts, where it wasn't just all me doing the interviewing. And I didn't want it to just be interview-based. I wanted to do have panel discussions, like town hall meetings. So half of the year, we'll be doing interviews, and the other half... The episodes will be town hall meetings, and our first one will be later this month. And I'm super, super excited about That's it. That's amazing. Working with lots of people. Yeah, all over. I'm working. I have co-hosts who are heart moms. I have co-hosts who are heart warriors. And 
I'm sure we'll have some heart dads in there. I've been working with some heart warriors who are men who are helping out. And it's so much fun. It's so much fun to have a whole new podcast with a whole new direction. But I like to come home to heart to heart with Anna. That really feels like home. And I still love doing that. I've backed down from that, except for February, where I did a show a day to raise awareness or I can do a heart defect awareness month. Mm-hmm. I'm doing a monthly now okay. instead of doing a weekly. So that's freed me up to do a little bit more. And plus, I'm a writer and I'm helping other people tell their stories, which is super exciting. I just started the Writer's Doula, I guess, about six months ago now. We started the Writer's Doula, so I am doing editing of other people's books and I'm helping them self-publish. So it's a super exciting time right now in my life. My heart warrior is Hope. She and I are writing a book together about being a heart mom and a trans daughter and rediscovering each other in a whole new way. That just gave me the chill. I'm super excited about that. But I should also mention, I have another book coming out before that one. It should be coming out very soon. I have not listed my date yet, but it should be in the next several months called The Heart of a Heart Warrior. I've been working on it for four years. I'm super excited about it. We have over 40 stories of over 40 heart warriors. We have made about 50 stories by four over 40 heart warriors sharing different aspects of their life. Hope has written And I will tell you all right away, Hope did not like the title of my book and has been against it from the very beginning, but I have the heart of a mother. I have the heart of a father. And the simplest way to announce the next book was the heart of a heart warrior. Yes, I could have said the heart of a person who was born with a congenital heart defect, but that doesn't really roll off your tongue like heart warrior. (laughs) It's just very complicated. So Hope's essay is, I am not a heart warrior. (laughs) (laughs) She refuses to let her heart defect define her and good for her. And I said, honey, you're not the only one who feels that way. So let's do that. The funny thing is that essay is in the chapter with a lovely essay by Jason Crutchley, a person I absolutely adore. And his essay is titled, How My CHD Defines Me. (laughs) Oh, hilarious. Well, I mean, and that's just how it is. All of us have such a unique journey. And exactly. It's going to resonate with someone and it's okay that hope doesn't want to be defined, but yet your other friend does. Like that's just, that's just where we're at on any given day. Jason's had multiple open heart surgeries and just recently had a heart transplant. So it's understandable why he feels this and, and he doesn't mean it defines him in a negative way. And I Mm -hmm. think, I think maybe now it would be a more popular term is informs. Okay. You know, how his yep. CHD informs might have been better, but when we were putting it together, define is, is the word that he chose to use. But I think he means it in a more positive way, such as how this condition has given meaning to his life. Yeah. Yeah. And it has. And he's an amazing individual. I just love talking to him whenever I get a chance to talk to him. He has... A fantastic story. That's the thing is every single person who contributed to my book could write their own book. They all have these amazing stories. And if you would have told me 28 years ago when Dr. Park told me to take my baby home to love him for what little time he had left, that someday I would be co-editing a book with a heart warrior from Australia named Megan Tones, and that we would be putting together 
an entire book of essays by people born with heart defects, I wouldn't have believed it. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel you. It. Like, But I, it would have given me hope. You know, it would have given me a mm-hmm. lot more hope. And that's what I'm hoping this book will do. Yeah. This, these are stories of hope. Beautiful. And this is what... This is what I want everybody who's in that waiting room for eight hours like I was. I want them to have a book like this where they can read story after story after story of people who have had challenging lives. I'm not going to take away their struggle. Their struggle is part of what makes them the amazing people they are. Your story, Boots, I mean, the fact that you did what you did, that you lived as long as you did, not even knowing you had a heart defect and then almost dying. And coming out the other end and now producing a podcast of your own to help people, that's inspirational. It's amazing. Yeah, I can't believe I it. I wish you were part of the book. I'm going to put together the heart, of, the heart of a Heart Warrior too, and I hope you will choose to write for that book. Oh, it would be my honor. It would definitely be my honor. Well, Anna, thank you for this, at times, pun totally intended, heart-stopping conversation. <laughs> you are obviously um, out there conquering the world and I don't know if when you sleep but thank you for coming on (laughs) my show I cannot wait for people to hear this and uh listeners I will put basically we just went to medical school in the past hour and I will put (laughs) I will put um all of those terms once I make sure they're all spelled correctly in the show notes and you will have 8,000 ways to connect with Anna Anna, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Can I give you my publishing companies? Oh, yeah, Baby, Heart, because Baby Hearts Press. Baby Hearts Press. Mm-hmm. Yes, Baby Hearts Press is my publishing company, and it's babyheartspress.com. Thank you. And that's our episode for today. Thank you so much for spending a little bit of your day with me. If you enjoyed this podcast, I sure would appreciate if you would go to my website, theheartchamberpodcast.com and make a donation. Also, if you are a fellow heart warrior, I'd love to hear from you. Would you like to share your story on this podcast? You can either send me an email at boots at theheartchamberpodcast.com or you can go to my website and go to the contact link and leave me a message there. There's also a way to leave me a voicemail on my website. I'm so glad you joined me for today. Please be sure to come back next Tuesday to the Heart Chamber podcast for another inspiring episode.